Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by the Texas Outdoor Musical in Paladuro Canyon State Park, which opens next week. This show is now in its 56th year, and it's about the pioneers who first settled this area. I've loved this musical since I was a kid. I like the music and the dancing, the spectacle of the canyon walls at sunset. I fully recommend it. Reserve your tickets now at texasshow.com. That's texas-show.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to The Pergola Shop online at thepergolashop.com. In fact, their building downtown has a new mural by Blank Spaces, which was partially funded by the city of Amarillo's mural grant project. It is super cool, so go see it. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com or pick up a copy at local newsstands today. Today's guest is Dr. Aaron Averett. Dr. Averett has her PhD and is a licensed psychologist and a specialist in school psychology. She does neuropsychological assessment and therapy for children and teenagers all over the Texas panhandle, and I think that is plenty interesting enough. But with the school year winding down locally and after a couple of years in which we've talked a lot about kids' mental health related to school, the pandemic, uh, distance learning... I wanted to hear from someone like Dr. Averett. She's also just launched an online course for parents with the goal of improving parent-child relationships, which as a parent myself, I know is super important. It's called Mind and Child, and we talk about that as well. So here's Dr. Aaron Averett. Aaron Averett, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Yes, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to talk to you. I want to start with you the same way that I've started with other guests, and that's just to ask you how you ended up here in the Texas Panhandle. So I was actually born here. Okay. Um, so started from the beginning. All of my family kind of separately migrated here in the mid-70s. Okay. To Amarillo? To Amarillo, yes. So I have a lot of family here. And all my aunts, uncles, parents, husband's family. Okay. Do you know what brought them to this area? Yeah. So my dad's story is pretty interesting. He grew up in Ira Ann, Texas. Okay. Which is in way west Texas. It's an oil town. All right. So each of my grandparents lived in this oil town right in the beginning. So when there were still just tents there and they had just discovered oil. Was that like in the 1920s or something like that early? It would have been... 30s, 40s. Okay. So my grandmother like cooked meals for that oil guys when she was like 14, 15, living in a tent. Wow. And then my grandfather actually worked the oil rigs. That's what he did after he got out of the Navy. And so, and he, I can't remember what his exact job was, but he did like maintenance and kind of ran around to all the different oil rigs, like checking the numbers and making sure that everything was running properly. Okay. And then in the late 60s, they started to automate it. And so they flew my grandfather to Tulsa to learn this like basic computer system of like how the oil rigs were keeping track of the numbers. And he came back in the late 60s and told his four children that they needed to go into computers. Oh, okay. So he really encouraged all four of them to pursue a career in computers. And so then in the mid-70s, they all came here because West Texas State was one of the only places that had a computer information systems program. Okay. 
So in the mid-70s, they all started to major in computers. Interesting. Yeah, and then started a couple of different businesses. By the time it was like the late 80s, they started electronic medical records for chiropractors. Okay. And then moved on to different physicians. So they didn't take that computer knowledge and go into like the petroleum industry. They just took what your granddad said and... Just went with it, yes. Yeah, went with it. Yeah, basically got like software degrees. Okay. And started doing different things with that. That's really interesting. Yeah. People don't think of WT as being uh, at the forefront of computer science, you know, right. especially back then. They think, well, it was an ag school or nursing or, or whatever. So that's really interesting. Yeah. So you grew up here then? Yes, I did. Yeah. So Where, where'd you go to high school? Tascosa. Okay. I actually grew up right around the corner in in Puckett. All right. Um, but I had a brother go to Tascosa, so okay. I, I followed him and went to Tascosa. And then once you graduated, what was your plan? Did you go away to college somewhere? I went to West Texas A&M. Okay, so you stayed here. Yep, I did. I knew I wanted to go into something, a helping profession of some sort, and I knew I wanted to work with children. I wasn't sure exactly what that was going to look like right away. So I started on a pre-med biology track, but I knew that didn't really feel right. Okay. And so at some point in, like right before I started college or my first semester, we had a family meeting of like a, what is Erin going to be when she grows up type (laughs) thing. I think my older brother was just strolling through the room and he said, what about psychology? And it just, like that was the light bulb moment where it just Hmm. clicked and it just felt very right. All it took was someone suggesting it? Yeah. And I think I, so my my dad is a computer programmer Mm -hmm. and my mom's an artist and I, and both both of those are really important to me. And so I think the hard sciences didn't really appeal to me. Something more purely artistic didn't appeal to me, mm-hmm. but I feel like psychology is a nice blend of the two. Okay. And so it just fit. Had you thought about psychology or did you have any exposure to it like at that point? So at that point... Other than maybe having heard the word, you yes, know? Yes. No, not really. So my parents both did some marriage counseling just through their church okay. out of our living room. So they, they were counseling other people? Yes. Okay. Not professionally, just Christian ministry. Right. Um, and I actually always hated that as a non-empathetic high schooler because I was <laughs> bound in my room. And yeah. if you strolled through the living room to go get a snack, there's people crying. They so. were talking about serious yeah, things. And yeah. You, you didn't want to disrupt that. Yes. Yeah, so I always refer to them as those crying people. <laughs> and so when I chose psychology, my dad was like, well, you're going to have to work on empathy. Yeah. But it, you're going to face some crying people. Yes. Yes. But it ended up being a really natural fit as I started to move into it. Okay. So once you, once you decided that was the path, like what did that look like? So I started with an undergrad degree in psychology, um, and I lucked out. My first class, my first semester of my undergrad was Introduction to Psychology with one of the best professors at WT. I think a lot of times those introduction classes are taught by graduate students or adjunct professors, but I got one of the best professors who ended up being my mentor later on, Timothy Atchison. Okay. and so that really locked me in. And each class I took, I just loved more and more. And then about halfway through my undergrad experience, WT got a new professor that started a school psychology program, Dr. Libby Rhodes. And school psychology is doing psychology in the schools. It's not counseling. It's more testing kids and working with kids to get them into special education. Okay. And that talking about that really that really felt right to me. So I got on some of her research teams as an undergraduate, started learning more about school psychology. And then I researched 
different graduate programs that I knew I was going to have to go into. And Texas Women's University in Denton had a program that specialized in school neuropsychology. And I always really liked neuropsych classes, just learning more about the brain mm-hmm. and how that that affected kids' behavior. And they had a program where you could go, if you if you got in, you could go straight into your doctorate program. You didn't have to do a master's first. So I applied to that at the end of my undergrad, ended up getting into that doctoral program, and then moved to Denton for graduate school and okay. did that. Did you have an idea at that point that you would end up in a school setting? Um, did you think about, I'm going to go away for a while and come back to Amarillo? Like, what, what was the plan? I knew I wanted flexibility. And so if I got my PhD in school psychology, and then I also got my license in psychology, which takes a couple of years after you graduate, Mm -hmm. then I would be able to have my own private practice. I could work in the schools. I could work in the hospital setting. I could, um, work at the university teaching. So as soon as I figured that out, then that was my goal because I just knew I wanted flexibility. You, you're just giving yourself a lot of options. Yes. Did you have a sense of where, like which option maybe you, you liked the most? I mean, were you thinking this would be really interesting to do this in a clinical setting? This would be great to work in a hospital. I mean, did, did you anticipate anything like that? I I did. And I, I trialed every setting out throughout my graduate experience of doing different practicums in hospitals in private practices in schools. And I was definitely leaning towards a clinical setting, having my own private practice, or maybe working at a university teaching. And I've done a little bit of both since then, but the private practice has really been where I've found a lot of fulfillment. Okay. So tell me, tell me what happened after you uh, finished all of your education. So I graduated with my doctorate in 2011 and I, so I, I graduated on a Friday mm-hmm. and I had my first baby a month early the following Tuesday. Okay. <laughs> so so that, welcome to being out of school. Yes. Finally, right? Yes. And I actually still had a little bit of internship to do after that. So then I had a three week old and was finishing up clinical work in DFW. And then my husband graduated with his dental degree on the following Friday. So we wrapped everything up. Sort of a transitional period. Yes, for sure. (laughs) Um, And we we knew at that point we were coming back to Amarillo because he had a job waiting for him here. So we moved back and I took about nine months off with the baby. And then I started reaching out to different psychologists here because in order to become a licensed psychologist, I had to do a postdoctoral supervised year under a licensed psychologist. So I actually ended up connecting with that same professor who was my introduction to psychology professor, Dr. Atchison. And so he supervised some work for me at WT. Okay. So I worked in the counseling department for about two and a half years doing evaluations for college kids who were needing accommodations and doing a little bit of therapy there. All right. So before we talk too much about what your career ended up being, I, I want to give listeners sort of a an idea of where you fell education-wise. Because mm-hmm. I know that, that people may think about um, like a, a licensed professional counselor, somebody mm-hmm. who they would go to for therapy. Mm-hmm. They might hear from you and you've gotten your doctorate in psychology. They might have heard past interviews I've done with a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of explain like what's what's the range between those things and how are they different? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and it's something that is hard for people to distinguish. So a counselor or a therapist, there's lots of different routes to get that and lots of different initials you can have at the end of your name to to get to that point. But you can start doing therapy with your master's Mm -hmm. with a lot of supervised hours tagged on to the end of your master's. 
So a therapist or a counselor comes out with their master's and can hang their shingle and start their private practice right away. And their scope is limited to typically just therapy. Right. So one-on-one, an hour at a time doing counseling with people. A psychologist, you have to have your PhD. Mm -hmm. Um, And psychologists are trained in therapy, but they're also trained in evaluations. So we can go in and do a series of tests with kids or adults that are more diagnostic. So we're typically looking for something like ADHD or a learning disability or autism and trying to figure out if they meet criteria for that or not. Okay. And so you have some psychologists that either do all testing and you have some who only do therapy and then you have some who do a mix of both. Okay. And then a psychiatrist and can a, do all those things, but also dispense medication? Yes. Is that, yes. So or psych- prescribe medica- medication? Yes, yeah. So a psychiatrist also has their medical degree. Okay. So they're in school for a long time. Yeah. And then prescribe medication on top of everything else. Okay. So after um, your time at WT, mm-hmm. um, did you begin to think, okay, I'm, I'm ready to establish my private practice? I'm ready to do something different? Where, where did you end up? Yes. So as I finished my postdoc at WT, at that point, I knew I wanted to transition into private practice, um, really because of flexibility mm-hmm. of I can set my own hours. If I have kids who have a Thanksgiving Day program at school, I can mark that off on my calendar and, and be there. So I started talking to a couple of different practices here in Amarillo, and I, I was having a hard time committing because a lot of them came with contracts. Of, you know, you have to work this many hours and produce a certain amount over three years. If you don't, then you have to pay it back. And because you're working for someone, then. Yeah. So that was very scary to me. Yeah. Um, And I wasn't sure what to do. My dad now has, I I talked about his career, but they also have some um, medical, small medical practices here where they run their software Mm -hmm. and, and, and do a lot of that. So everybody in their, business office is HIPAA certified and they have a pretty big business space. So he came to me and said, Hey, like we have extra space. We have a great lobby. We have a receptionist. Everybody here is HIPAA certified. So why don't you just rent space from us? Just do it all yourself. Have your own private practice. If you need something happens with the kids or you have another kid, you need to shut down your practice. You just close your doors and come back when you're ready. So that that was another light bulb moment where it's like, okay, that's what I want to do. Right. I want to have control over my career. I want to have control over when I work, when I don't work. And that that's when it started. So what year did you open that? 2014. Okay. So coming up on eight years. Did you focus on children or was it broader than that? I really focused on kids up through college age. Okay. Um, when I first started, I, I took some adults as well. I just kind of tried a little bit of everything. And when I was in graduate school, I did a lot of work doing like dementia testing. Mm -hmm. And so the first few years I, I took some adults, but over time I've really narrowed it down because there's so few psychologists here. I was going to ask, I I feel like, I feel like there's not a lot of just therapists, counselors, psychologists at all. No, there's not. um, In this area, but a specialist in child psychology probably is, is even less. Correct. Yes. When I started, there were six psychologists here that would work with kids. We've had a few pass away. We've had a few move to places like Pantex where they're only seeing okay. people in that system. And so right now we have, there's two psychologists, me and one other who do testing for kids. And there's two psychologists who will do therapy with kids. And that 
that's it. All right. We, is the bulk of your work primarily then on the testing side where you're helping kids figure out, you know, maybe learning disorders, ADHD, yes. that kind of thing? It has transitioned to that. Okay. When I started, I was about 50-50, but we, we do have a lot of really great counselors here who work with kids who can take some of that therapy load. And so, but we don't have the psychologists to do the testing. So over time, I've really transitioned to about 95% testing. Mm. I'll occasionally take some therapy cases. I, ha- I have a lot of really good luck working with kids who have obsessive compulsive disorder. Hmm. So I'll occasionally take some of those cases on, but mostly it's just there or testing. How do your clients find you? I mean, are you being referred by like school counselors and the school system as opposed to a parent just saying, my kid's bouncing off the walls. Can you yes. help? You know, most of it comes from pediatricians at really? this point. Okay. Yeah. There's a few pediatricians that refer to me. I do do some contracts with schools. So some of the smaller school districts around here don't have the school psychology staff to support evaluations. So I'll do some of their evaluations. Um, In the larger districts, they do have school psychologists, but sometimes a parent disagrees with that evaluation. Okay. And so they'll request for the school to hire somebody outside to do a, a secondary evaluation. So I'll do those as well. What's that process like? When you are testing a child, is it something that you can diagnose like fairly quickly? Is it a process? Does it require like multiple types of tests? How does that work? Yeah. So I do mostly neuropsychological testing, which Mm -hmm. takes a while and it maps out the brain. That sounds a little hokey, but I'm looking at things like their language skills, their processing speed, how well they can attend to task, their memory and I'm looking for specific patterns and if that equates to what we know in research for patterns for those specific disorders. Um, so I do it over a series. I always meet with parents first mm-hmm. and to just get a lot of background information on child's development, how they've been doing, kind of what the current problems are, and then we map out a game plan for testing. And then testing usually takes between three to eight hours with the kid, just depending on their age and how many concerns there are and how in-depth we need to do that. And I break that up into usually a couple of different days of testing. All right. And then it takes me a, a while to then score all of that, integrate it, and I write a report for the parents. And then I meet with the parents a couple of weeks later to go over everything. Tell me what happens after that report. I mean, once once you tell parents, this is what I think is happening, mm-hmm. and then they get some sort of documentation mm-hmm. that confirms maybe what they thought. Yes. Then what happens? I... They usually go on someplace else. So I tell them how to start getting services in the school Mm -hmm. if they qualify. Um, And we start that process where they can bring that to their principal and start getting special education services or even some general education services called 504 to start getting help for the child at school. Sometimes the next step is therapy. And so I'll refer them on to a therapist to do counseling. Sometimes the next step is something like speech therapy or occupational therapy. I'll send them in that direction. Sometimes the next step is medicine, and so they'll go back to their pediatrician and talk with them about it. And then I have lots of strategies for what I want the parents to work on at home with them. So a lot of that, I I would imagine, requires some sort of documentation, like in order for the school system to put them in in this track or anything like that. Like they've got to have proof. Yes. Yes. So that's, that's what you're providing, along with, you know, the tools for parents to use, for teachers to use. Absolutely. Yeah. I know the national cultural discussion of some of those learning disorders with kids has grown. You know, Mm -hmm. kids who uh, might have just been thought to be 
troublemakers or don't pay attention or aren't good at school, you know, now are being diagnosed with learning disorders and things like that. Uh, Probably from the time you were in school and, Mm -hmm. and I was in school to today. And I wonder if that growth is something that you've seen locally, that there's more openness to considering these things, that it's, it's on the radar of uh, school personnel, that kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. You know, and when we were in school, I feel like there was a, a push to separate kids who were in special education. There there was, you know, it's completely separate classrooms for kids in special education or, hey, these are the bad kids they are acting up. We need to stick them over here. Whereas now the culture is very inclusive. Right. And when I talk to parents about like your your child now meets criteria for special education, that does not mean that they're going to be in a special class. Right. That does not mean that their education is going to look differently than anybody else's. That does not mean that other kids are going to pinpoint them as a special ed kid. Their education is going to look very similar. They're just going to have some extra supports along the way. Okay. So tell me how your, your practice has sort of evolved over the past few years then. Yeah. So I've, I've moved mainly to testing, which means that my FaceTime with parents has become more limited. Mm-hmm. And so I really get two hours with parents, an hour in the beginning, and an hour at the end to talk about everything that I want them to be doing at home to help support their child. Although I'm fulfilling a need with testing, that, that change has been more frustrating to me and that I want more time to work with parents. All right. So about this time last year, I started thinking about how I can get to parents more and really more specifically, how can I reach parents before they ever have to call the child psychologist? And that is where I came up with the idea to have an online parenting course hmm. where I'm teaching me and another psychologist from Fort Worth, Jordana Mortimer, are teaching foundational parenting strategies that we recommend to most parents if they're in their office or not in our office to help prevent some struggles that we commonly see at home and to help address negative behaviors once they do pop up. How do parents, let's say, who who might take that course, mm-hmm. how do they know they need to take that course? Is it something that like, if you have a child, you should do something like this? Or is it if you see this behavior, here's here's kind of the first steps to take? Yeah, I we we really made it for every parent. Okay. So if your child is 12 and under, these are the things we want you to do to start building up your connection with your child, being able to communicate with them, and being able to meet needs that we often see not met mm-hmm. that then lead to negative behaviors later okay. on. So it's really more of a preventive type program. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask of, you know, the the things that you're helping to diagnose mm-hmm. are those things that are often like hardwired into a kid or is that a, a nurture sort of thing? Like, did, is this, did, did mom and dad break them? You know, that's a <laughs> yes. terrible thing. That's what parents are always worried cool. about. Like how, am, how are the decisions I'm making going to impact my kids as yes. they get older? Or are some things just like, this is how their brains develop? Yeah. I mean, that is always the question from parents of, did I do this? Mm-hmm. And the answer is it's a mix, but, but no. And <laughs> that a lot of these big neurological disorders like autism or ADHD is just brain wiring. Right. So there's studies that show that there's brain differences in kids in utero who wow, later get diagnosed really? with autism that, that have been there from the beginning. So it's not something that they did. It's not, not hugging your child enough. It's, it's true brain development. But what I do see is more behavioral issues. Um, or extreme anxiety, or a lot of acting out or noncompliance. Those are things that we can curb with some parenting skills earlier okay. on. So 
this uh, this online program, mm-hmm. I gather, is relatively new. Then, I mean, just the last year or so. Yes. How how has that gone? It's been exciting. Mm-hmm. It, it is very new. So our our name is Mind and Child, and we filmed the course at the end of October. Okay, with a really great local production crew, and then started social media in December. And so we started on Facebook and Instagram, just giving kind of daily parenting tips. And then we actually released the videos in our website at the beginning of March right. of 2022. So it so is relatively fresh. Then. Very new. Yes. And it's a, it's a video based thing. So, so maybe somebody subscribes to it and they get access to the videos and then you, you talk them through situations and all that yep. kind of thing. Yeah. It's the masterclass style. Okay. So it's about 90 total minutes broken up into 27 videos. Okay. So each one's well under 10 minutes and we cover things topic by topic and cover how to handle sp- specific situations and give some language for how to handle it all. Is, is that video interaction primarily what your subscribers get or is there like ever anything where they get to do a zoom call with you or, or something like that to ask specific questions? Yeah, no, we haven't done that yet. We've, we've talked about adding more of a like one-on-one consultation part of the package, mm-hmm. but we haven't added that on yet. I'm, I'm curious if, if you've seen this model, you know, something that more, let's say child psychologists are doing mm-hmm. because as a society, we've gotten more comfortable with, you know, online content over the mm-hmm. last couple of years uh, is is that a model where you know people who have positions of authority like you uh, or experience you know might create this master class kind of thing mm-hmm. you know to address certain problems? Yes, and I think that's where we're coming from. Of you know that there are skills that we can easily teach like a mass amount of people. You mm-hmm. don't need to be in a one on one setting for us to tell you these things, and these are going to help a large group of parents out there. And so that was the goal of what can we tell you that doesn't need one-on-one child psychologist time that will start helping you out today. How have people responded to that? Good. Good. I mean, I, we get really good response on social media. Um, it's still, it's still it's slow. It's like very new. Yeah. It's right. slow. It, we're still babies. We're not, we're not marketers. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we both became psychologists because we like working one-on-one and we like being the listener in the conversation. So it's, a, it's different. For me, it's fun because I am also creative. So it's a way to be a little bit more creative and getting this information out there to people. So since since I've got you here, I, I want to ask you this question. Um, I, I know there's been a lot of discussions over the past couple of years about the impact of the pandemic on kids mm-hmm. and school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's the first few weeks where, you know, you've got six-year-olds trying to go to Zoom kindergarten or, you know, kids having to wear masks and not seeing their teacher's faces. Like, have you encountered any of those challenges in your practice? Yeah. I've definitely seen an increase in anxiety in kids across the board. Um, All ages? All ages. And and adults. I think everybody's a little bit more anxious over these last couple of years. I'm seeing an increase in school refusal. So a lot of- What does that mean? So kids just refusing to go to school now. T- typically coming from a place of anxiety. Um, I, I would see a couple cases of school refusal pre-pandemic per year, and now I, I see it pretty regularly. Hmm. I've, I think now kids have experienced what it's like to be at home and do school at home, and now that leap to get back to school is, is more significant and more severe. And can those anxieties trigger behavioral problems or ADHD to get worse or like OCD might get, I mean, those, those things kind of can make existing problems even worse. Yes. Anxiety tends to trigger 
everything. And it anxiety doesn't always look like what we think it looks like. A lot of times it looks like a really huge meltdown or tantrum mm-hmm. of ripping stuff off the walls and hitting and screaming and kicking and biting. And that feels very behavioral. And sometimes it is, but for a lot of kids, that is how their anxiety manifests. So. Are those conversations that you've had as a mental health professional, you know, with school boards that are trying to decide what do we do with masks? How, how do we keep going? I mean, like, have you been a part of those conversations to say, these are the things you need to pay attention to? This is the limits of, of what this, you know, protective idea can, can get you? Mm-hmm. I haven't yet. I've, I've worked more individually with schools on individual cases okay. of, okay, our goal, all of our goal is to get this kid back in school, yeah. penalizing them right now for being out of school, even though that's what we've done in the past is, is not going to help right now. How can we develop a plan to get this child back in school gradually without them being penalized, without them having to repeat the year to, to get them where we want them to go? One of the things, I, I guess a conversation I've had here is that you know, culturally, we live in a place that is very built on self-reliance. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tough this out or I can grit my teeth and get through this. And I, I wonder if that's something you think about with your profession. As, for adults, I think there's there's a hesitation maybe to go to therapy because they mm-hmm. think it's a sign of weakness or something like mm-hmm. that. Do, do you see that with parents and their kids mm-hmm. not wanting to admit my kid might have uh, a problem that, that we should think about? Yes. I do. And I'm not sure if it's local or cultural or more family systems based. What I see most often is dads and sons. So dads are more hesitant to admit that their son has a clinical problem. Right. And the same thing with moms and daughters. Hmm. And I've seen some research to, to back that up on the, the, Maybe dad's identifying with the son or mom's identifying with the daughter and them having a weakness feels like a, a personal weakness, maybe. Correct. Yes. And and they see themselves in their kid and they know that they stuck it out, even though it was really difficult. They made it through so their child should be able to suck it up and hmm. walk it off and, and work through it themselves. All right. I, I want to ask you this question. Maybe you have an answer for it. Your initial exposure to counseling was... Um, your parents at home mm-hmm. in a a church setting, maybe mm-hmm. a religious setting. They mm-hmm. they weren't professionals, but they were faithful members and maybe had some wisdom to share. There, there's a stigma uh, in in some religious traditions against professional help because they just think, well, you should talk to your pastor, mm-hmm. or you should pray more, or maybe you need to you know read your Bible or, or whatever. And so you've you've kind of seen both of those, and I mm-hmm. wonder, as a professional, obviously you think that's an effective pr- approach. Uh, ha- have you faced any of that, where where kids maybe are held back because of a hesitation to go a non-religious route into mental health or mm-hmm. diagnosis or whatever that might yes. be? Early in my practice, I saw that more. However, in the last few years, I've seen that change. Okay. For the better. For the better. Whereas I'm having more and more pastors refer out and actually say like, Hey, we tried working on this, but this is beyond our scope. We really want you guys to, to take this over and and take this case. Um, so I'm I'm just seeing the the church leaders more Mm -hmm. as a whole be more accepting and and likely to refer out. That's one of the things I always wondered about the limited nature of professional counseling mm-hmm. or psychologists in Amarillo. If if the 
the religious traditions here, as strong as they are, um, might have been preventing some of those things from really growing as they might in, in other cities. Yeah. I think another benefit to our area is a lot of mental health professionals are religious. Mm-hmm. And so even if they have a secular state degree, if you have a client come to you and say, hey, I'm a Christian, can we can we talk about that in therapy? And the therapist is the line. They can say, yes, absolutely. Right. And that I think that helps in this particular locale. Okay. It's harder for people who do not want to work with a Christian therapist um, to find somebody who, who aligns more with them. Who is purely secular. Right. But in some cases, being able to access the spiritual side as well as the clinical side, um, the, maybe that's helpful. And, mm-hmm. and maybe that gives you multiple tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you, um, did, did you always think that you wanted to come back to Amarillo after you went to school? I mean, was that kind of always on your radar? Yes, it was the unstated plan that I think my husband and I both had because our we have so many family members here. Both of our parents are here. All of my aunts and uncles are here. His sister is here. My siblings are here. And we we love Amarillo. We lived in DFW for five years for mm-hmm. graduate school, and we liked DFW, but we our heart was always pulling us back here. So, Did living in the Metroplex for that many years – and then coming back here, did it did it help you understand Amarillo a little better? Maybe appreciate it more, or did you think, oh, we're missing this thing? I mean, did, how did that kind of impact your uh, your expectations upon moving back? Yeah, it helped it. The things that we missed in DFW were just some of the restaurants and things that you could go to, which when we were there, we were grad students. We didn't have yeah. money to do any of that anyways. <laughs> but, um, but also just the lakes, it's a little bit prettier there different outdoor opportunities. And so once we moved back to Amarillo, we were missing some of that, but then we really rediscovered some neighborhoods, you know, off of the Canyon mm-hmm. and going to Paladere Canyon more. So I feel like we, we still have gotten that need met here, but that, that was the main thing that we missed when we moved back. Are you surprised at where your career has ended up? Like what you're doing now compared to what you thought you might've been doing in high school or college, does this feel natural or does this feel like, I can't believe I'm here, but it's, it's good. Uh, I'd say a little bit of both. It, it feels natural. It definitely feels like I'm in the right spot. It was everything that I was wanting. I'm in a helping profession. I have a very flexible schedule. I'm working with kids. I get to do some things that are a little bit more creative, but I, I definitely didn't see myself in this exact position. I think in high school, I definitely saw something more more medical, maybe a little bit more research-based mm-hmm. than where I am now, but I'm, I'm very happy with where I've ended up. This episode of Hamarillo is supported by Blue Handle Publishing, which released a new book from Jordan Reed this week. It's called The Wizard's Brew, and it represents a thrilling, hard-boiled take on the fantasy genre. Jordan is a native of the Panhandle who graduated from WT, and The Wizard's Brew is his debut novel, you can learn more and order The Wizard's Brew by Jordan Reed at bluehandlepublishing.com. Okay, I'm back with Aaron Everett. Aaron, this is the part of the show I call 8 Straight. 8 Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes a 1924 Ford Model TT, which is a one-ton heavy-duty truck that had a top speed of 17 miles an hour, and it was used in the early days of the oil and gas boom in the panhandle, the 1920s. 
Didn't cool. know that was part of your story, but it kind of works. Well, so there you go. That fits. Uh, you can learn more and you can see that vehicle. And, and it, it really is a cool, uh, cool old truck at panhandleplanes.org. Okay. First question I've been asking is what's one thing the pandemic has revealed to you about local people? Two things that are opposite and also related. One is that pre-pandemic, the thought was that Amarillo was very homogeneous and how we thought about things politically, culturally. And I saw through the pandemic that it was very polarizing. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot more opposite opinions, even within families, within same groups, than I would have expected that I would have seen in Amarillo. However, even if people in Amarillo had really different opinions about the pandemic and political things going on, we still take care of each other. Mm-hmm. And the community of Amarillo is very strong. And so you saw people taking care of local businesses and local restaurants, and you still saw a really intense and unified community spirit here through that time that I loved. As a psychologist, were you just watching people and saying, oh, they're just acting out because this is a really stressful time? You just saw yes. anxiety expressing itself, yeah, right? A- absolutely. A hundred percent. It's <laughs> the adult version of not wanting to go to school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? Oh, this one's a hard one for me, but I think I would say rundown buildings along major highways. Okay. Mainly because when we lived in DFW and I would tell people we were from Amarillo and we wanted to move back, the number one thing I heard was, why? Like, it's so ugly there. And that always broke my heart because if you get if you get off the highway, yeah. like there's, there's a lot of beauty. I think about that I-40 corridor yeah. all the time when I'm driving on it. And I'm like, this is the part of the city that yes. people see for the 15 minutes they're in Amarillo. What impression are they getting? Right. Yeah. And there have been a lot of discussions about having better welcome signs and all those kinds of things and text dots involved. And it, it's just very complicated. Yes. You know, whether you're buying up old hotels and restoring them or, or whatever. And that's, that's something that I'm glad you brought up because I don't think we think about that often enough. Right. You know, not just get off the highway so that you can go to businesses, but like get off the highway because you get a better first impression of the city when you yes. do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're fixing up lots of really great areas mm-hmm. in Amarillo, but God, yeah. that corridor. you got to leave I-40. Yeah, and that 287, there's a section on 287 too. That's yeah. not great. What does this area not have enough of? Mental health professionals for okay. children. <laughs> so even in private practice, for sure, even in the schools. So the National Association of School Psychology recommends that we have at least one school psychologist for every 1,000 students. Okay. And so I think Amarillo ISD has about 30,000 students, and they typically have four to five school psychologists. And that is very representative of the different school districts around here and mm-hmm. then and the mental health professionals in private practice as well. Whereas we're seeing, I'm seeing clients from four different states. Wow. It's just, we don't have, we don't have enough. You, you would like some more competition, yeah, I guess. Absolutely. I would love to be put out of business. <laughs> Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? I always say it's four hours from everything except the beach. Yeah. You can get to big cities, you can get to mountains, um, and it has just the nicest, best people in the world here. Okay. What's your favorite street in Amarillo? Sixth Street. All right. I, I just have so many memories going with my parents, going with my aunts, taking my kids so my middle son, who's about to be nine, loves Route 66. He, he's kind of a quirky little dude who gets interested in 
history and science. And so, and he, he loves to go on dates with me and he says he just wants to go someplace and just wander. Mm-hmm. And so we like to go to the sixth street and just walk around. Okay. And when he was younger, we went to, I took him to the dinosaur museum in Tucumcari. Yeah. And we tried to take route 66 the whole way back to Amarillo. And that was oh, wow. just a, a key memory for both of us. So. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Most, most uh, route 66 fanatics are older. Uh, it's interesting to have a kid who's yes. interested in it. Yes. He's a funny little dude. What's your favorite local restaurant? Uh, Public House. All right. It just, I, I love the people who own it. Mm-hmm. I think I've never had anything there that was bad. It's always good. I have a couple of psychologist friends who, who come in from DFW and work here every couple of months. And one of them travels all around the world. That That's her hobby is traveling and she claims that Public House is one of the best restaurants she's ever been to. All right. So we have to go every time she comes. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your favorite local coffee shop? Cliffside. Okay. Um, we are we love River Falls, mm-hmm. and, and the people who own it are from out at River Falls. And it's just, it's always good. They're always friendly. Do you have a particular location that you go to? Um, the one on Osage okay. is the one that I go to the most often now. All right. And when was the last time you visited the Big Texan? Speaking of restaurants for tourists. Yes. So I'd say about five years ago, I took my boys on a summer tour of the top 10 Yelp-reviewed places in Amarillo. Oh, yeah? Um, My husband was in the National Guard at the time, so he would leave for two weeks every summer. So I always try to make those two weeks kind of special. So that was our task that two weeks. So we went to the Big Texan, Cadillac Ranch, Mm -hmm. the... um, Jack Sizemore RV. RV. Yes. Yeah, museum. Yep, Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. Okay. So we just try to check off all the top Amarillo sites. Which which one of those sites were they most excited about or did they like they the most? They loved the RV museum. It's really cool. Yeah. Not enough people know about that. Yeah, yeah. They loved You can actually get in them yeah. and walk around. Yeah. Okay. Highlight. All right. Well, Aaron, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Can I have two? Yeah. Okay. I'll give you two. So make pictures are the one are the, the production team that filmed our videos. Okay. And they are local. So two two of them live here and do a lot of work for AISD. So right. they actually won a local Emmy for doing the secret classroom for AISD yeah. over the pandemic. And the other one, Matt Riley, is from here and then lives in Austin right now. And they're, if you need anything videography-related, production-related, they're, they're really amazing. The quality of what they do is really great. They're nice. They're easy to work with. Other than that, um, I recommend Turn Center to people all the mm-hmm. time. So it's a nonprofit that does speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and we actually started a counseling program there as well All right. um, for kids who go to Turn Center, or even siblings. So if you have a sibling that has a disability who's receiving services at Turn Center, then the sibling can go get counseling at the same time or the parent can. Um, so it's a really great nonprofit. All right. Those are good. Dr. Aaron Everett, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Jason. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Erin for the interview. You can learn more about her practice at erinaveretphd.com. And you can learn more about Mind and Child at mindandchild.com. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors the Texas Outdoor Musical, Blue Handle Publishing, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. 
If you like this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. This helps other people find the show, and this makes me feel good. As usual, the podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Heyamarillo's executive producers include Jess Heredia, Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Corey Burns, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 249. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.